Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm your host and coach, Tyler Johnson. Thank you for tuning in. If you are a return listener, I'd be grateful for your rating or review. And if you dig this episode, give us a like or share. And now, whether you've tuned in to elevate your mindset, your game, or just your day, you are in the right place. My guest this episode served a 22-year career in the U.S. Army Special Forces, where he eventually went on to revamp the Green Beret selection process, seeing the success rate climb by as much as 30%. In a 2019 Indie Star article, Indianapolis Colts General Manager Chris Ballard said of him, I don't know anybody like him in the league. Former NFL exec Joe Banner added, what he's doing is absolutely groundbreaking. Here to share with us a little bit about that, Director of Team Development for the Indianapolis Colts, Mr. Brian Decker. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Tyler. Yeah, excited to have you. Um, I find uh, the work you're doing in the NFL fascinating. Um, let's maybe start with that. What, what is your, tell the listeners what your role is with the Colts. And in an article in 2019, they're qu- quoted as saying, what you're doing is groundbreaking. What is it that kind of you do and differentiates, you know, your role from maybe some other roles in the past? Yeah, so I guess we could start with the title. Uh, I'm the director of team development, uh, but that's kind of a, an abstract, an abstract title, and, and I don't think it has a, a lot of merit as far as what I do. You know, most teams don't have anyone uh, that oversees development, but I, I would guess you know, starting at the high, highest levels, you know, uh, I champion development across the organization, whether that be coaching, scouting, and with players. And um, if you think about my role and some of the stuff that when people say some of the work we're doing is groundbreaking, I I think that might be a bit much. I wouldn't want to go that far. I I will say, though, we have made a commitment as an organization to making the, the character and the culture of our team one of our elements of our competitive strategy. We're, we're, we're committed to that. So uh, I don't think we're doing things that other teams aren't doing. We may just be emphasizing them a little bit more. And uh, so on the, we'll start with the player front. You know, it's, it's really twofold. I, I work in this time of year, I'm, I'm working with Chris, Ed, and our scouts uh, on the character side. Just make sure we get the right guys on the bus. Sure. And, uh, you know, the scouts, are the, they're the frontline soldiers. They're, they're the ones going into the schools. They're grinding through the tape. They're the one that takes, you know, thousands of players and turns that into something meaningful to begin to focus on. They do the, the first level of collection. Um, and then based on what they gather and, and the importance, uh, you know, I work really closely with Ed Dodds. Ed will then give me a, a list of players to look at. And really, essentially, in scouting terms, I'm a cross check. You know, I look and, and look, the, look at it as a cross check, but, but it's really different because most of what the, the, the scouts are using to assess players comes from what they see on film yeah. and, and the information that they're gathering at the school. And it's, they gather a lot of information and they, they do a lot of work. And I couldn't do my work without that, but my mind's different. I, I need to talk to the player. Sure. 
And, you know, for me, and this is maybe where we're a little bit different is, is the emphasis we place on, you know, understanding a player's story and, and that personal narrative, how he has given meaning to the people, places, and events in his life, how that shaped the person, the player he's become. And, you know, if you think about hiring practices in the corporate world or, or even, even a scouting process, you know, your resume is what you put on tape, right? And that's always going to be the most important thing, but that tells you what you have done. It doesn't tell you how they did it. And so to me, what doesn't always translate you, the performance uh, that they've had on the field doesn't always translate, but the way in which they approach the game, the, how their personality, their makeup, their character, uh, I think that does. And they're going to carry many of those behavioral strategies forward with them as they come into the league. And so, that first part is just getting that piece, understanding that piece. And the one thing I think character, one reason why I think it's really important, um, and I will start out by saying character is not a substitute for talent. I know we know lots of great people in life, right? And, sure. you know, um, but what it does is it gives you, it creates trust between the organization and the player. It allows us to be more patient because if you understand how he goes about uh, or how he approaches the game, um, it allows you to reduce the uncertainty of can he translate his talent into skill and can he translate the skill into performance at this level and he, can he do so in a way that you know, benefits not only the team but those around him. And so that's, that's one part. Um, I, I would say a second part um, is, is the work that I, that I do with the coaches. You know, um, Frank is very growth minded. I mean, I mean, you know, we all, everybody throws that word around growth mindset, get 1% better, but it is absolutely in his DNA. I mean, you know, Frank is, Frank is 60 years old, but he has a beginner's mindset. He's always looking for ways to get better. Um, Himself as a coach, his coaching staff, his players, his organizations, his systems and his processes. So I work really close with coach, uh, you know, try to, you know, develop, uh, you know, we, I work with him each spring. We put together some development sessions with our coaches. Uh, you know, I'll nominate eight, 10 of those sessions and he'll pick the ones that he thinks that we most need and we'll, we'll do that. But I, I would say development is a daily activity with us and whether that be, you know, in, during the season, I share a weekly newsletter. It's, it's a topic that's relevant. Uh, to the development of the team and it's relevant to coaches and players. And he works really closely with me on, on crafting that. So we do a lot there on the, on the coaching development. Um, I work one-on-one with players and that's all, you know, relational based and kind of meeting them where they are and, you know, trying to put the player in the driver's seat for development. You know, he's, he has goals and aspirations and, you know, it all begins with the role he has on the team. You know, how do we how do we increase or his ability to perform in his role while also developing his long term potential so he can ascend? So, for example, he might be a a wide receiver for that might be his current role. Well, how do you master that role while at the same time? What things do you need to be doing to take that next step so you can ascend and be a a three or a two? And um, so we do we do those activities. I do some work with the scouts. I did more of that my first couple of years, you know, teaching them, uh, you know, 
the currency of scouting is information. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that, that I, you know, people say, are, are you concerned that you give away all those things that you've learned over time? And I, I, I feel like you don't have an option. You know, you've got to make those around you better. So it's all about, am I, at, you know, am I, am I asking good questions? Am I getting good information? Am I making good assessments off of that? So, you know, I, we were always doing great things there. I've just tried to help them become better in that regard. And, you know, a couple different times while I've been here, I've gone on the road with those guys. And, and so you can understand the nuances of, of how they, you know, what are some of the obstacles that they have to overcome and what's the nature of collecting that information. And I've been able to share, you know, methods and ideas and, um, that I think help them become better scouts and gather better information, but ultimately arrive at a better assessment because, you know, all, as a team, we have to be able to use their information to make decisions. And, uh, you know, you want a degree of consistency in how they, how they see it. So at a really high level, that's, that's kind of the things that I, that I do. Um, yeah. I would say one of the, one of the, like the things that probably the most professionally rewarding thing that I get to do is, I get a chance to work with Coach Wright a lot on just the messaging with the team. Sure, uh, sure. We are a, we take a values based approach to leadership, um, and you know so and, and it's very important the message that we send to our team, and that it's consistent with who we are and who we want to be. And so I do a lot of work there. You know whether it be you know messaging to, to start a, a phase of the season. Or that weekly message is he, you know, he's, we're on this journey together, you know, and, and, you know, he's constantly having to kind of make those slight deviations to keep us on track. Sure. Um, can, can you talk to, about values based leadership real quick? Can you just kind of talk about, you know, maybe coaches out there that are like, Ooh, I'm going to need a little add some of that to my team, my organization, you know, how do, how do they begin to insert some values based leadership? Well, I think most of the time when we talk about things, we want to talk about what you should do. We should talk, we talk about these actions or goals or things that you should do. And, and I, I think that you can lead an organization based on, you know, tell, you know, setting goals and objectives and, 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 and kind of pace setting and leading an organization to that. Um, you can be more outcomes focused, you know, and at the end of the day, I mean, it's, we all know we're going to ultimately be judged based on wins and losses, but a values. So a, kind of a problem with like leading with water or just purely with like expectations is that you're consciously or you're constantly trying to legislate and develop new rules and expectations and incentives to try to get people to where you want to go. And when you take a values-based approach, or principled, it's more principled. You know, they go, this is our mission. This is your role. In, in the values become guiding principles from which you, that's where your behavior, they know what the expectations are based on the values. So it's a more of a focus on how you go about it or the process of doing than it is necessarily on the outcome. The outcome becomes a, a feedback loop that allows you to determine the efficacy of your process or approach. Just something to point to daily. Those, this is the values. This is the standard. This is what we're about. 
Um, I, I love love that. Uh, you're not a, uh, I wouldn't say a, a natural path into an NFL front office. Uh, like me, you are a defensive back. Um, I know. And then, uh, can you talk a little bit about from high school to uh, kind of your days as a Green Beret? Yeah. So. If, if I said I was a terrible football player in high school, it would probably be a compliment. <laughs> you know, I, I grew up in a very rural setting. Uh, my, we lived too far from town and my parents were too busy to, to take me to and from practice. We didn't play sports growing up and didn't have the physical traits to rely upon. And uh, I didn't have the experience base. I, I wasn't very good. At, I enjoyed football. I, I really liked it, but I wasn't good at it. Um, I tried, you know, I, I wasn't good at school either. You know, I really wasn't, I don't think, you know, growing up, I was ever really good at anything, but I knew that I had an energy. If I could ever find something to focus it on, that I thought would, would, you know, allow me to be successful. So I tried to go to college for a year and a half after high school in what my mother would later call a failed experiment. And I just got to the point where I, I didn't know where I wanted to go in life. And I joined the military and uh, it was the first thing that I ever really truly excelled at. I mean, it's, it's a merit-based activity. Sure. The harder you, you sure. work, the more you focus, the more you're willing to sacrifice and commit, the better you, the better you do. Uh, I also found one of the things that I found most meaningful about the, the military and I found now in football is, is that sense of purpose, having a mission, being a part of something greater than yourself, you know, getting a chance to lead and to do, to do it with others, you know? And uh, so I, I was, I was enlisted for a couple of years. Um, during that time, you know, there was a, there was a, a senior person of our organization asked me, so what are you going to do with your life? And I did one of those, what do you mean Friday, Saturday? He's like, no, what are you going to do with your life? And I'm like, you know, I hadn't really given a whole lot of thought. Um, and he said, I, I think you could, I think you would be a good officer candidate. And I was like, yeah, but that requires me to go back to school and not haven't done really well at that up to this point. And uh, long story short, he believed in me and he carved out a path. And more importantly, he believed in me before I believed in myself. And he kind of created a spark and, and got me going in a direction. And, and, you know, I then go back to college. I do really well. I mean, I, I really fell in love with learning, yeah. you know, and um, I did well in school. And then I came into the military at back, back into the military as an officer. And uh, in 2001, I just, I, I needed to do more. I wanted to be a part of something special. You know, I wanted, I wanted to challenge myself and I wanted to do it with others. So I tried out for special forces, uh, which is kind of risky in the sense that when you go, when you leave your organization to go try out, everybody knows you're going. And if you, and the, and the pass rate is not very high. And if you don't make it, you have to come back to your organization, kind of dragging the duffel bag and, and kind of owning, owning that shortfall. But I, I, I basically for two years before I went to selection, everything I did was aligned and focused in my life to going there and, and getting through that process. Um, I did well in selection, was selected. Then that starts a, about a two-year time frame of, of training. And um, I completed Special Forces training in December of 2002. 
And then uh, I, from there, I went to Ranger School. Uh, and then so I get to my unit in basically the spring of 2004, uh, Fifth Special Forces Group. And all those guys, my team is in Iraq. You know, the whole organization is in Iraq. So I'm sitting back there and, you know, I kind of felt, you know, you fell left behind, right? You know, everybody's over there doing all these great things. And here you are back in the, in the rear. Uh, but the team redeployed in, in July. And then uh, I, I took over a team, a special forces detachment, which is, it's, it's a lot like a football team. You know, it's, it's 12 guys and the captain or the team, the team leader, he's essentially the quarterback and everybody under him is just, they're like linemen and they're like skill position guys. Everybody brings a specialty to the team. And, you know, I, I was a team leader for uh, just under two years. And I got a chance to, you know, lead men in combat and all that that all that that entails. And, you know, professionally, I don't think anything will ever, ever rival that. I mean, to have that responsibility for, you know, the lives and the welfare and to accomplish your mission of 11 other guys. It's a huge responsibility. And going to war is one of those things that just teaches you a lot about yourself. I don't think, you know, you see it uh, dramatized in, in, in movies and books have been written about it, but I've always found it difficult to capture in words what it's like. And I, uh, I still don't think I can do it justice today, but it's, you know, there's so many highs and lows, you know, it's, you know, dealing, dealing with pressure, uh, is, is a daily occurrence. Um, it's, you know, you know, I don't think many people join up or do something where we're making the ultimate sacrifice is something that's real. You know, it's, it's real. I mean, it, it wasn't just this hypothetical. You could, I mean, it was happening all around you. Right. And you know, you know that, you know, that being good is a part of that equation, but so is chance. And just, and it's that, it's that managing that chance or uncertainty, those things that you can't control that can, that can make you go crazy. And, and I learned very early on, you have to shift away from those things because you can just go down rabbit holes of, of thinking that are just, they're, they're maladaptive, they're counterproductive. So you really just have to focus in on those things that you can control. And that's having the right mindset, being supremely prepared, having great plans. And, and the one thing that I always felt comfortable and gave me peace of mind was, just knowing I was, I was surrounded by great men, yeah. you know, not some, every one of them were, were great men. They were great at what, what they did. You know, everybody talks about developing trust and they talk about vulnerability and transparency. Combat is the ultimate way of creating trust. I mean, you're extremely vulnerable. You can't do it alone. You're totally relying upon the man to your left and right. And, and the threat of death is real. So, uh, you know, you learn a lot, you learn to really, really trust others and, and you learn and you have to be vulnerable to do that. And, and the nature of combat just brings that out. And, you know, to me, it's, that's one of the special things about combat. And I think you can, you can, you can begin to get that in football. It's just the kind of brotherhood, those strong personal and professional bonds that form when you do something, when you're united in purpose and do something together where you're absolutely dependent upon the man to your left and right. You know, I think the best teams, if you think of the best offensive lines or the best units, it's they play as one. They play as one. And 
probably one of the things that drives them is not wanting to let the man to the left and right of him down, you know, and, and, and when you start doing that, you start, it, it creates cohesion. You know, it's, it's really interesting to me. I, I, I love to read Medal of Honor citations. People who, you know, awarded the nation's highest uh, award for valor and to try to understand how they thought about it. And, you know, two things, you know, routinely will come out is, you know, they're very patriotic. They believe in the mission, but that's not what drives them in those difficult times. It really is that responsibility they have to the man and to the left or right, left and right of them. And one of the things that they will routinely say when pushed to, to take that risk, you know, that ultimately allow them to be awarded that honor you know, why did they do it? And, and they will usually say something around the fact that because I know they would have done it for me. And that's just powerful. And that, that shows you the reciprocity in that relationship, in that brotherhood, in that camaraderie. And um, so after my time, I did a couple of rotations to Iraq, one in Ramadi, which in 2004, which at the time was probably the most contested from Ramadi to Fallujah was probably the most contested real estate on earth. No place was, you know, I mean, it was every day, all day. Uh, it was high. I mean, there was a lot of action going on. And then later I went back and did a rotation, uh, you know, in uh, Baghdad, you know, as a staff member. And after that, I, I had a choice. And for me, um, there's a lot of different career paths, but you have some autonomy in where you want to go. Sure. I always just love coaching and leading. And I just come off the battlefield. So I wanted, I went back to the uh, special forces school and taught in our, in, in the course. And I love mentoring, you know, mentoring and coaching young, young officers and NCOs who would, or they're called non-commissioned officers or enlisted guys, but to mentor them, to share those experiences in, in, in principled ways in which they could, it would help them become better leaders better prepare them for the perils of combat. I'd done that for a couple of years, and then I ended up going to the Naval Postgraduate School, uh, which probably professionally is one of the most meaningful experiences. It's just a world-class education, multidisciplinary approach to solving today's military problems. So you take, it's more, I would say, I mean, it was a master's of science, but it's more, it's a broad base. You take everything from game theory to mathematical modeling to social movement theory. But I had, a, I had at that time, I had 10 years of operational experience. And what that allowed me to do is to then educate with that backdrop, to relate the concepts and ideas I was learning with my experiences. And I think that's, that's one of the difficult things for people is, a lot of people look at getting credentials. I want to get my bachelor's. I want to get my master's. I want to get my PhD. And, and I think all of those things are great. But how many people ask when is right? And I do think you have to have a basis of knowledge. If you have a good basis of knowledge or a basis of experience, when you go into your education, I think it just enriches uh, what you take away from that. Cause I think, you know, on one level you have this experience and then when you learn these ideas and concepts, those two form together to create wisdom and that wisdom can be shared in the form of judgment and intuition. And, um, then my last, uh, I went back after that and I worked at the special forces school again. In my last three years, I was essentially the general manager of special forces. And I ran that hiring process and, 
And it was during that time where I really did that deep dive into talent assessment. I became fascinated with people who go on to be great at whatever it is that they do. You know, look at CEOs or a person that, you know, a free diver that dives 100 meters on a breath or, you know, bum gardener and jumping from outer space yeah. or any of the sports teams. And, you know, to me, I wanted to know, like, how, how similar are these people when you take the sport or domain specific activities way and just look at their mindset and approach, how alike will they, are they? And my, my, my thesis going in was that they would be a lot alike in how they approach their craft. And that's what I've, you know, anecdotally found to be true over time. You know, the, the demands placed upon greatness is very similar regardless of fields. Yeah. And so then I move on to football and I got hired into Cleveland by Joe Banner. And the vision that he had for the role was, you know, just a kind of short story is he says, you know, we, we miss on 50% of first rounders. And when he says miss, it's not that they don't play, but there's an expectation or a level of return you're expecting right. on that. And he said, we're not missing because we don't understand the talent requirements of it. He said, we're, he goes, I believe we're missing on the person. And I was very quick to say, I, I, anybody that tells you that they can solve that problem is lying to you because that's just, a, that's human nature. But I did believe that with good methods and good approaches, we could reduce that uncertainty. We could reduce the uncertainty with the person in many of the ways that we talked about up front. And if you could do that and compound it over time, it becomes a competitive advantage. Uh, unfortunately, um, Joe Banner and Mike Lombardi were let go before before I even got there, but uh, they kept me on. In that first two years, and I'm I'm very grateful to the Browns for you know paving my you know paying for my education into the league. I didn't understand football. I didn't understand the sport, the industry, the culture, how it worked. And in, in those two years, I learned a lot about how those things worked. But um, in the end, Ray was let go in 2016. Ray Farmer, the GM. And when in football, whenever they let a head coach or a GM go, they typically will purge large portions of the organization. Sure. Yeah. And then I was out for a year and I was still under contract. So that in that year, I really had a time for reflection. And I think this is another key point for people. Do you ever truly learn without, without really kind of reflecting upon your journey and where you're at? And so I got a chance to do some soul searching and to go back and to look at my, my first two years of doing it and to really get my crystallize my thoughts. And I, I kind of made my own plan. If I get a chance to do this again, you know, how do I use my past experience to inform my future performance? And um, it was just so happened that during that time, I ended up linking up with Chris Ballard and, uh, Chris was then at the, I, I think he was the director of player personnel at Kansas City. And, you know, I sat down with him and within minutes, I, I, I knew that philosophically I aligned. He saw the value in people. He's very people centric in his, in his, his approach to leadership and uh, building organizations. And he just told me, he's like, if I ever get a job, I'd love to bring you on. And I didn't really think anything would come of that, but, you know, luckily he got a job and he brought me onto the Colts and, you know, the rest is history from there till now. Yeah. Um, I think one of the interesting things, you know, I know you, uh, you talked about, you know, speaking with the players, you know, having that, that interaction. Uh, you do so with 
hundreds of uh, student athletes, uh, athletes each year. What's something you've gleaned maybe in the last year or two from some of those interviews um, that in general maybe motivates young people these days? What do you see or, or learn from those interviews about maybe quote unquote this generation? Yeah. I'm going to generalize and, and answer a, a really closely related question. Um, listen, as, as you move those hierarchy of needs, that need to kind of, um, to enjoy individual success and to be recognized by others being as being good in your field is very important. I mean, that's especially at, at the tactical or lowest levels. But the one thing that I find, you know, I saw this in special forces. I've seen this in other fields of study and as well as in football is that if you're going to have a great career, the best way, one of the, one of the most foundational things to that, it's desire. You got to want it. I mean, desire is fundamental success. I mean, otherwise you don't, you're not willing to make the sacrifice and commitment and all those other ways that you need to, right? To get there. Well, you know, the, the, the literature on motivation can be broken into roughly two houses and it's never quite that clean. It's on a spectrum and there's a lot that goes into it, but you have, a, you can be motivated by external factors that can be awards, accolades, stats, um, you know, just the, the praise and feedback of others. Uh, and or you can be motivated by internal factors that could be, you know, competence, mastery, love of what you do, pride, family, achievement. Uh, and there's there's always going to be aspects of both of those. We all I mean, we all. We all want to be good and we want to do well and we want to be recognized for what we do. But I think if if I was trying to help shape the mindset or the motivation of somebody, I would tell them you need to cultivate a strong inner desire. You need to develop a strong inner desire. And the reason why is, is because if your blend is too heavy toward those external factors, what happens when you hit a rough spot? When, you know, maybe the, so, the social media is not good, you know, the awards aren't there, the playtime's not there, the stats not there. Well, then what happens is your motivation, your fuel dries up. But if you have this strong inner drive, if you're doing this for something greater than, you know, individual accolades, I call that like being nuclear. You have like this mm -hmm. nuclear energy. You, you have this, you know, this sustainable form of energy that will drive you through tough times. You know, and, and so once you have that high level desire, desire really fuels two things. One, um, it it generates the, the work or the conscientiousness, which is your work, your focus, your discipline. You're, you're moving towards something in a very deliberate manner. And then secondly, it's, it's foundational to your resilience. Uh, because if something's not important to you, you're going to have a tough time overcoming it. And so... That's the reason why, I mean, I, you know, as a part of that developing that desire is, is to take that time to articulate what is your why? Yeah. What is your why? What is really your why? What, what motivates you? What drives you? And make that about something bigger than just yourself. And then I think that just that, that sets the stage for developing that conscientiousness, which develops your skill. And then I think it helps you develop that resilience, which allows you to weather the storm. And that kind of goes into the second big thing is you have to make adversity your teacher. Mm, yeah. 
And, you know, you know, Chris talked to the team last year during training camp and he, he quoted someone else and he said, everything we want to do is on the other side of hard. Everything we want to do is on the other side of hard. It, you know, everything you want to do, you're, you're going to be challenged. And, and you, and so that's going to place a premium on resilience and people use that word differently. I think there's two components to resilience. One is just a strength or a power. It's that ability to kind of not be affected by things that others wouldn't you're stronger, but then there's also this adaptive component where you bounce back very quickly. Listen, everybody gets frustrated with setbacks. We all have this range of emotions, but that person who's resilient, the spike that's created by that negative event is, is lower and they return to baseline much, much quicker. And they tend to do that by focusing in on the opportunity for growth and development that comes from facing those difficult times. And that gets back to development in general. I mean, our body wants to achieve homeostasis. So the only way to force it to grow is to constantly challenge it. And so inherent in that, is the need to be uncomfortable. You know, you have to be challenging the boundaries of your ability and adapting to those demands to grow. I mean, that's, that's education in special forces. It's, it's, it's what we call in, in development terms, it's stretch assignments. You're constantly being put into situations that are at or exceeding your ability with the resources and tools necessary to overcome it. And then you're growing as a result of that, both individually and collectively. So um, I know you talked about your, your school experience earlier, and then uh, I know when we first talked, we were talking about some books. Um, as a lifelong learner and reader, uh, are there any books you read recently that uh, you recommend for people looking to build great teams and build other leaders? Yeah, I, one, one of the best books I've read in the past year is The Principles of Groundedness by, I think it's Brad Stolberg. And it's not about leadership development. It's not about team development. It's, it's really about a way of like developing this work-life harmony. And, 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 and to me, I think Brad does a really good job of, he kind of does... He has these, I think, six or seven principles of groundedness that he lays out. And each one is designed to create a mindset that I think ultimately makes you and your team more resilient. Cool. And, you know, it, at the heart of it is, is developing a healthy relationship with your occupation and what it is that you do. And having a, and developing a very resilient, grounded approach to it, to that. Um, a second book that I think is just, uh, it's just really, really good book on kind of the mindset and, and, and just development in general is The Art of Impossible by Stephen Kotler. Um, you know, Kotler's done a lot of work. I think he uh, is the leader of the flow genome. He's done a lot of work with like Red Bull and other athletes. And, and, and it, he's advanced Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's work on flow a lot. And uh, he talks a lot about not just the – the principles and the concepts and the training, but even the neurobiology that supports that, you know, and the other mechanisms in a way that, that, I mean, like to me, I don't want just something self-help, do this, do that, do this, do that. I want to understand how it works. I want to understand the why, because 
that helps inform me. So he does a great job. And chapter five of that book on grit is just incredible. You know, most people, when, when they, when they want to learn something about grit, they pick up Angela Duckworth's book on grit. And I think it's a really good book, but I just, from, from a practical side, I didn't, it didn't give me a lot of action. You know, it, it didn't give me a lot of actionable or things that I could, that I could work on specifically, you know, um, he has a much more comprehensive definition of what grit is and, and the elements that make it up. And when you understand those, then you see the opportunities to train it on multiple levels. So that's a good book. I mean, I, I think just foundational to anything when it comes to, to development as far of mindset is, you know, Carol Dweck's growth mindset, you know, um, it's just, I mean, what is, I mean, what does every drug have to overcome in, in its clinical retrial? clinical trial, it's got to, it's got to account for the placebo effect, the power of belief. And I, and I just, I get, I just think that having that right mindset, if if you have a growth mindset, it it expands your world. You see, you see the opportunities. Uh, I think you're more likely to will yourself to that. I think, I think you can, with that growth mindset, you can achieve so much more because the fixed mindset it's just the opposite. It, it constrains your world. You take a very limited view. You start thinking you, you can't do those things or it's not worth the time or effort. And it's like Henry Ford, I think, was famous for saying something along the lines of whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. Uh, so I, those are some books. I mean, I, I, I read a couple of books a week and, you know, I take bits and pieces from all. Those are some of the, the better ones that I've, that I've read recently. Excellent. Excellent. I know. You mentioned one or two of those before. I've got them on my uh, my list to to bring in, so I'm excited to to read some of those. Uh, from your time as a Green Beret, I know you you know reshaped some of the uh, things they are doing down there, um, as far as the success rate um, and things like that. What convinced you that the things that you were able to do with the Green Berets would work in the National Football League? Well, first of all, I think the human factor, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's in everything we do. It's in everything we do. And so it varies in importance uh, based on the nature of the work and the type of the organization, a whole host of factors. But if you think about special forces, if you think about a professional football team, the product of the business is what you put on the field. That's what you put on the field. And so your people are your most important asset. And so to me, if you want to learn about people, go to those places where people are most important and look and see what they do. And and to me, you know, I just, I think the one thing that is easiest to do is the resume or the objectives or the measurable aspects of any hiring or talent process, right? Yeah. But to me, there is, I, you, I think you have to understand personality. I think you have to understand character. I think you have to understand mindset. I think you have to understand the neurobiology that goes into that because with that, I think you can make better decisions. I Listen, I don't think any person is either right or wrong. The question is, have they evolved, have their skills, their 
kind of their profile? Is it, has it evolved to be a good fit for what you're trying to do as an organization, provided that the talent level is right, right? Um, and and I, think, I think that's one of the ways in which many, many organizations and in multiple industries ultimately fail. It's not that the person that they hire or they're trying to move into a new position doesn't have the talent. The question is, do they have those, those other traits necessary to bring their talent to bear in that setting? You know, one of the things that stuck out to me, I, I read a book called Chasing Stars one time, and it was about, they used the stud, they were studying uh, Wall Street investors. And they would, look at, they would look at people that were hugely successful at one company, and then they get hired away to another company, and then they wanted to see is, could they replicate that success when they moved? And what they found was, is, is that the performance was not always portable. It didn't always translate. Uh, in many cases, when they went to another organization, they, they performed below the level at which they, from which the organization which they were hired. So that means there was a lot of complex interdependencies at that organization that they came from uh, that contributed to their success. And FIT is one of those. And so to me, that's kind of a part of my my belief in any hiring practices is once you've checked the blocks, this person has the experience, they have the credentials, they have the talent, they have the resume per se, then what you're trying to do is not select the best, the, the best of that bunch, you're trying to select the right one. And that, and that means as an organization, you have to know what right looks like. What does right look like yeah. for you and your team? And so it's, it's in many ways, I think you're selecting for fit in that final stage. Cool. Uh, how do you define success? The last questions we always like to ask on the podcast. How do you define success, Brian? One word, progress. I am, um, you know, people talk about, are you outcomes focused or are you process oriented? I am focused in on, I, I am totally committed to those things that I can control. And that's my day-to-day -day activities. Yes, I, I have a long-term vision that gives me that North Star, that thing to orient on. And I do that plan and set those milestones as they move back. But to me, success is to continue to make progress toward those goals. To continue to, and, and, and that means it's, it's about growing every day. And to me, there's kind of a, there's kind of a paradox in goals. I mean, yes, it, it feels good to achieve a goal, but then what, you know, to me. So I think you have to really focus more in on your habits and your routine. And, you know, Atomic Habits is a great book that kind of give you perspective in this realm. To me, it's about, you know, kind of look at your daily habits, kind of group those together and look at the trajectory that they're performing or, or they're pro that they're forming. And is that, pointing toward where you want to go at the end of the day it's to me it's 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 really about those day-to-day -day activities that's those accumulation of you know small gains over time that lead to those breakthrough moments rarely is someone's success this milestone event it's I mean, yeah that may be where it was captured but what people don't see in the success of many of the players like i were they don't see the work that goes on behind the scenes they don't see the sacrifice and commitment and that's what kind of gets back to that internal drive is you've got to be willing to do those things well before the outcomes, well before you're getting the outcomes you achieve. You know, you've got to continually 
have to make those small deposits daily into that bank. Make your, you know, sacrifice the work, the focus, the discipline necessary to get there. But to me, I it's it's I want to be able. Goals are about achieving something in, in the future, and, and to me, that's that's just a point in time. I want to win every day. I want to win every day, and and I do that by to me to win the day, win the day, and be successful is I've executed my daily habits, my routine. Those, those should be challenging in nature. They should be making me better. So everything I'm doing is designed to, to grow personally and professionally as I move toward that goal. Thank you for listening. If something caught your ear as useful or unique this episode, we would love your help spreading the Elevate message. You can find me on Instagram at Elevate Educate Rejuvenate. That's with the numeral instead of the A-T-E. Thank you again. And if I can help you with anything, please reach out. And don't forget, go elevate others.